Welcome to the Aquatic Mammals Journal Historical Perspectives podcast series. The Historical Perspectives series is an ever-growing body of work that consists of more than a hundred interviews with scientists, researchers, animal trainers, legislators, and more who helped shape and found the marine mammal field from its beginning and as it continues. I am your host, John Anderson, and today we're exploring a conversation I had with Dr. Bill Evans in 2008. Dr. Evans was a world-renowned marine mammal acoustician and ecologist with special interest in marine mammal management and conservation biology. Beginning in the 1960s, Dr. Evans was one of the first scientists who comprised the cadre of the U.S. Navy's Marine Mammal Program. During his decade with the program, his primary area of research was marine mammal communication, echolocation, and population ecology. After his tenure with the Navy, Dr. Evans took on an administrative role as the executive director of Hub Sea World Research Institute in San Diego, California. There, he created a world-class research facility that is still in operation today, 50 years later, and mentored new scientists, many of whom also rose to prominence in the marine mammal field, like Dr. Jeanette Thomas. In the mid-1980s, Dr. Evans worked in Washington, D.C., first as chairman of the U.S. Marine Mammal Commission, then ultimately made his way to NOAA, where he was appointed by President Reagan with Senate confirmation as the Undersecretary of Commerce for NOAA, as well as the U.S. Commissioner for the International Whaling Commission. Dr. Evans retired from federal service in 1989 and left Washington, D.C. to become the Dean of the Texas Maritime College in Galveston, where he conceived a new course entitled Environmental and Resource Management, Policy and Politics. Even in retirement, Bill stayed busy as an adjunct professor at the University of Notre Dame and managing editor of the American Midland Naturalist. He also became an accomplished watercolor painter and writer. Dr. Evans died in 2010, but his thoughtful oversight of numerous next-generation scientists left a lasting foundation that is solid and growing today. Let's listen to what Dr. Evans had to say when I asked about how his career path unfolded. I was at um, working for Lockheed, and uh, Lockheed was interested in uh, some of the same things the Navy. We had a Navy contract to uh, look at false targets. Marine mammals make noise. And, uh, uh, they were developing uh, a new ASW airplane, uh, which was called P3V. It's now basically still operating. And it was based on the old Lockheed Electra uh, turbojet. And uh, so I was hired from Douglas Aircraft to uh, work on uh, developing uh, both a noise catalog and also to do measurements to make sure you have sonar operators, and sonar operators in airplanes, airplanes are noisy. And so we had to try to design the stations where they could sit and listen to the thing. So we made a lot of measurements and things like that. Uh, and so we got very interested in, in marine mammals and things at, at, at Lockheed. And uh, one of the questions that came up is that a, a gentleman by the name of Dr. Poulter, who was at the Stanford Research Institute, had done some work with um, sea lions and fur seals. And he thought that they had an echolocation. 
there were a number of other people uh, that were at other universities that were not convinced that, that they had uh, uh, echolocation. So we got a hold of a sea lion named Roxy, and uh, we trained Roxy to uh, be blindfolded and dive down in a tank and retrieve rings. Well, it turned out that when we put the blindfold on her, she would dive in the tank, but she was sort of like a, a blind person uh, swimming around using her flippers like this to touch to find, find the ring. And we got no sound out of her at all. So we came up with a paper saying that, you know, sea lions probably use passive hearing and other kinds of senses. As soon as, uh, from the videotape that was taken, as soon as she got in the water with the blindfold, those vibrissi went bam, like this, those big long whiskers. They stuck out like this, and she was out there probing around with these whiskers. And uh, so we wrote a paper on that, and uh, shortly after that, I was offered an opportunity to go back and start working on my PhD at UCLA with Ken Norris. And uh, I was offered a chance to go up and do some research at Point Magoo as a, as a summer employee. And uh, I decided, well, we had Roxy. I had quit Lockheed, and Lockheed uh, didn't want a sea lion. We, we make airplanes. We don't do things with sea lions. And so uh, I had Roxy, and they were going to euthanize her. And I said, no, it's my, my sea lion. So I took her. I took her home. Well, we, had, we raised Irish setters, and so we had a dog run. I put her in the dog run. And uh, that's, that's a whole different story in terms of that. My dogs didn't like her very much. Uh, eventually, I had an opportunity to go to, to uh, Point Magoo. So as uh, Woody, F.G. Wood, uh, wrote a book called The Navy's Marine Mammal Program, which was good up to about 1970. And what he wrote in his book is that I was the first person in that program that was hired that came with his own sea lion. And uh, uh, Rocky joined it. She joined the Navy and uh, uh, was staying. And when I left that program, uh, I left her there. And uh, she had good food, good, good, good medical care, good medical program. Uh, the Navy was very kind to her. So it was, it was, a, it was a good thing. And uh, the I don't know. I, I think that in terms of, of the, the whole program and, and, and going, I think that it's uh, uh, I, I think it's, 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 a, it's a moot question in a lot of, lot of ways in terms of, of those things. But uh, I, I had to leave uh, in the Navy. I was only in the Navy up until 1976. And, uh, uh, and it was an excellent program. But, and I did a lot of my basic research there. But I started out at Lockheed and slowly moved in to uh, working with the Navy. And I got into doing echolocation mostly because, uh, I don't know if everybody's aware of this, but the Navy has three or four different kinds of funding. And most of the original funding that we did was what they call 6.1 money, which came out of the Office of Naval Research. And that's basically what it is, basic research, trying to answer questions that we have that, that we, we don't have answers to.
And uh, so some of the initial sonar work and some of the dolphin hearing work, the basis for that was actually came out of the Navy program. And uh, it was later that uh, we presented a program uh, at the first biosonar conference in uh, Frascati, Italy. And uh, Ken Norris presented a paper, uh, and I was co-author on that paper. Uh, I and Bill Powell presented a paper, and uh, uh, we also were involved. Scott Johnson was there for his hearing paper. Uh, and it was a lot of this. And a fellow by the name of, of uh, Dr. Uh, Griffin, who was a bat guy, and uh, sort of really the biosonar person. He su supposedly discovered it. And uh, after he got done, he said, you know, he said, uh, Dr. Evans, Dr. Johnson, he said, I, I really appreciate that these dolphins can detect uh, stainless steel cylinders at certain distances and differences between those and metal plates and all those things. But how do they use it in nature? Well, that was an interesting question because all of our work was done in captivity. Uh, we couldn't go out in the ocean. We couldn't get in the, in the water. It was a, we were dealing with very interesting animals that only spend maybe a very small percentage of their time on the surface of the water where we can see them. So Ken and I both thought, you know, we've got to figure out some way to get in the field and observe these animals and see what they're doing. And that resulted in Ken building a, an underwater vehicle. I ended up having the Navy build one. Uh, and I had a chance when the Navy was changing their labs, uh, I was given a choice of either going to San Diego or going to Hawaii. So I took my family to Hawaii for a summer. And uh, after being in Hawaii one whole summer, I, we decided we were probably mainlanders and not really islanders. And uh, so we moved back to, to San Diego and uh, started there. But that's when I started to work on mine. Ken's machine was very good. We got some really good stuff from it, but it had a tendency to rock and roll and uh, it was towed behind a vessel. And uh, uh, Ken was the first person to ride in it. And he was just really excited. You could hear him yelling over the intercom and, and things. And uh, he's talking about all the things he saw with the dolphins and, and uh, how many there were below the surface. And, that sort of thing. And, and um, then he called and he said, it was my turn. So I went out and got in. He forgot to tell me something. He forgot to tell me that he had lost his breakfast inside this small container. And I crawled down inside of it and I got some good observations, but uh, it, it sure was difficult. And when I got back out, we had a very nice discussion about uh, it's sort of the courteous thing to do is to warn somebody before they get into that situation. But uh, uh, Hawaii was, was a good, good, good thing. It was a good thing to, to go. I got a chance to work with different animals. We published a paper on rough-toothed dolphins, Stenos, uh, with Ken. And uh, I came back to Point Magoo and I continued my research there. And uh, it's... Uh, uh, it, I would say the Navy is really the basis of my most productive research programs. 
Uh, and when I left there, I went to uh, SeaWorld. Um, and, uh, and, and sort of, I guess I'm a, a, a sort of different than most of the people in, in the field because I've worked with industry. And I've worked with uh, uh, nonprofit foundations. I've worked with academia. Uh, I've been involved in, in, a, in a number of, of, uh, of, of issues that, it, that involve the private sector. Um, so I've had a chance to, in the federal government, I've had a view of this whole program. And so when I left uh, SeaWorld uh, and I went back to the federal government, uh, I was chance to look at the other side. And my interest was in monitoring the Navy's program. So it was rather interesting. I came where the point where I was monitoring the program that I used to work with when I was with the Marine Mammal Commission. And then I went over to the National Marine Fishery Service, and then from there on up to, to NOAA. So in all of those positions, it's, it's, it's interesting, and I try to tell students sometimes, that when you're in the field, sometimes try to imagine what it is as if you step outside of it and look at it from a different standpoint, outside that box. And it's, it's interesting because it looks different. It's not the same thing. I had my feeling in terms, that was when I was, really became aware that uh, all of these areas like oceanariums, the Navy, university programs, uh, environmental programs run by environmental groups. All of these things basically are part of a whole. And, then, and you just can't focus on one and say that's the most important thing. They all have a piece of this whole thing because if you look at marine mammals in general, they're very complex. So it's, 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 a, it's a very interesting thing. You'd be surprised how many people are not aware of the fact that probably 90 plus percent of what goes on with, uh, with dolphins in the oceans, we don't see. Unless we do some of the innovative things like that Kathleen Dzinski has done in terms of getting down and observing these behaviors and photographing them. And that's really important. I'm not even too sure that she is aware of how important some of her work is because it's changed our whole attitude. I've read some of her stuff and and I'm looking and say, hey, you know, I saw that. And uh, because, but I was looking for different parts of it. I was looking for a different aspect. I was asking different questions. And, uh, and I think that's very important. We also discussed his involvement in development of a radio tracker for wild dolphins. Well, one of the things I mentioned earlier in terms of the fact we, we really had a lot of information on sonar and things from animals in a captive situation, uh, or as the people in the oceanariums like the controlled environment. Uh, and uh, <coughs> we, uh, we then, that's when we developed the underwater visual machine to be able to see well and get underwater and do that. But we needed to be able to stay with animals. And uh, uh, I had read an article in a, in a paper uh, about a company uh, in California that was developing small radio transmitters that they could put on buoys for oceanic so they could go back and find their, their buoy or the fishermen could find their, their nets once they left them. And so I went and talked to these people. I had a fiberglass um, common dolphin 
that we'd made from one of the animals that, uh, that we lost at Point Magoo. So I loaded that in my car and I drove to, to um, Cal California, I mean to San Diego, and I went into Ocean Applied Research. And I walked in the office and the lady came out and looked at me and she said, uh, excuse me, are you in the right place? And I said, yes. I said, I want to talk with uh, Hugh Martin here. And so he came out and uh, I had this and I said, can you make your radio transmitter so that I can put it on the dorsal fin or something of this animal? He said, well, give us a couple of weeks to think about it. And I had to leave the, my animal there, uh, my fiberglass dolphin. Went back in a couple of weeks and they had some designs. This was, believe it or not, about 1963, 64. Uh, and uh, uh, we may be the first people that ever put a, uh, a transmitter on, on an animal, but we made one, we tested it uh, at uh, Marine Land of the Pacific. Uh, it seemed to work fine. Uh, we had a sort of a handheld direction finder that we used. That wasn't working very well. And so uh, one of the people that worked with Hugh said, well, we can make, a, 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 we can make an, an automatic direction finder for that. He said, it just takes money. And fortunately, the Navy's program was well-funded. So we developed that, and we, have a, we had a, the whole thing automated now. And uh, the very first time we took it out, we managed to um, stay with an animal for about 14 hours. And... Uh, and, and that was that was amazing. We we found some amazing things in terms of what the animals were doing. And as we got better, we got longer. And eventually, we got to the point where uh, we would do three and four days of things. And that's when we discovered that these guys just don't randomly wander around the ocean. Uh, we were getting repeated patterns. And you know, accidents happen in science, and sometimes those are the best things that happened. Uh, the captain of our uh, little research vessel uh, grabbed maps to, to put out what we were going to do, but he grabbed the wrong maps. Instead of the navigational maps, he grabbed the topographical maps. And so those were the maps we had to try to navigate with. And so we were putting down locations where we located this animal, tracking it. And after a while, when we were going over these things, we were looking at this and saying, now, this is interesting. Very deep, way before you would think everything in effect, are ridges and sort of mountain ranges in the Catalina Channel that run along. And these animals were moving right along that ridge. And when they got to the end of it, they jumped over to another ridge. And they went right along that ridge. And then they went back to another one. And so there was a real pattern that for some reason they were following the topography. Well, I went to some of the oceanographers and I said, they said, oh, that makes sense. She said, you got a current moving through here and the current interacts with the, the topography on the bottom. So you get changes and you get upwelling and downwelling and that's areas where food concentrates. So that's what they're doing. They're foraging and looking at various places. So the next step we went, we got together with the California fishing game, and they had a, about a 40-foot, 45-foot trawl that they would uh, lose to look at deep scattering layer organisms. The other thing we discovered is that uh, these guys stay up in the upper 
15, 20, 30, 40 feet until the sun goes down. And then all of a sudden they start to die. Well, there's a thing called the, the acoustic deep scattering layer that comes up. And it was pretty obvious that they were feeding on the deep scattering layer. But then we put a net out and we had the net trawl in an area where we were tracking. We knew there was an animal there and uh, they were looking at the things and what they were getting were some of the same things we'd found as stomach contents. Uh, euphosids and uh, 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 various kinds of uh, interesting deep water fishes and anchovies and miniature hake and all sorts of things like that was basically what we were getting in the net. That's what the animals were feeding on. So uh, we sort of started to solve some of those mysteries. Uh, with the technology they have today, my God, I mean, uh, they got transmitters that are, that are about this big that they can put on animals. It gets five channels of information. All we were getting was depth of dive and, and in some cases temperature uh, at, uh, at depth. And it was very primitive, but then it wasn't primitive. It was really, was really exciting stuff. And uh, I feel very proud to have at least opened that door. Uh, because there's lots and lots of people started using that technology. I don't know whether we were the first or the Russians were the first or, or it doesn't make any difference. We, we got some information and uh, uh, were able to publish some papers and we actually used some of that. Bill Perrin was doing cruises down to the Eastern Tropical Pacific to look at uh, uh, spinners and spotters, the animals that were involved with the tuna industry, and that's a whole different uh, part of the career. But uh, it was, um, we went down and we made uh, persane sets on animals, and then we tagged two or three animals, one male, one female, turned them loose, and then we put regular marker tags on some, and we'd let these animals go loose. And then we'd track them, and one of the things that was interesting is that they were all together in a big group, but then when we released them, as the sun went down, the female went one way and the male went another way. We had to flip a coin as to who we were going to follow. And I think we, we followed the male. It was the stronger single. Uh, and we followed him. And we lost the female. Next morning, uh, when we're sitting there and the, and the sun is slowly coming up, we're sitting there and looking in. And Bruce Parks was uh, operating the equipment. He switched over to the other channel. Very faint beep, beep coming in on the thing. It was the female, and she came back into the group again. And it was interesting, whether or not that indicates that males and females feed differently. But it was at least those two, those two uh, male and female did, and uh, uh, and that was. And we lost all of the animals for about almost a week or so, and then we traveled further south picked the signals up again. So actually, it was a pretty long radio track. And uh, uh, it, uh, it was published with a paper that uh, Bill Perrin published on the tagging results for the Eastern Tropical Pacific. And I think it was the first one that had actual data points on it for that much of an area. So now it's just, uh, that's ancient history. and. Uh, uh, it's, uh, I, I'm amazed when I go to these conferences and, and look at the equipment that's, that's available now. It's just uh, mind-boggling. I keep touching my hand and saying, I was born too soon, you know. It's, uh, 
it's a it, it's an unfortunate thing, but it's just amazing the information they're getting now, and uh, and I think it's important because uh, I, I, not everybody agrees with this, but I think that marine mammals, whales, and things, because they're top of the of the whole pyramid, are really good indicators for us to look at in terms of what we're doing to our oceans today, and it's, that's not too good what we're doing, some of the things we're doing. And I think that it's important for us to, to look at those individuals that live in it. It's their domain that they're going to tell us, you know, if things aren't going well. And, I, and I, that may be wishing for too much, but I think it's true. I think that's one of the really important things that's not just to learn about whales and dolphins, but to learn about how they respond as large mammals. We're a large mammal uh, in that environment, and that if changes in that environment, oceanographers tell me that whatever happens there is going to have an effect in someplace else. This planet is mostly water, and as that environment changes, uh, it's going to have major impacts in other areas. And people talk about global warming and global climate change and, and other things, but the ocean plays a real big role in that, and so. It's, uh, I think that's one of the things I learned when I was in Washington, D.C. I worked with a lot of oceanographers and astronomers and meteorologists and things, and I got a whole new education, which was uh, sort, of, uh, sort of a lot of fun, but very, very interesting and, and helped me a lot to understand other things I had done. Finally, I asked Dr. Evans about how he's spending his time during retirement after having such a diverse career blending politics and science. Let's listen to what he had to say. I wish I would have had an opportunity to get back into, uh, into science. And I did, to a certain extent. Uh, at, uh, at Texas A&M, uh, we managed to get a seven-year contract uh, to look at the bird and marine mammal populations of the Gulf of Mexico for the uh, Minerals Management Service uh, because of they wanted to do the deeper water wells and things. And so we uh, put together a program of both ship and aerial surveys of the Gulf of Mexico, probably the most comprehensive look at the marine mammals and things. And we were in a good position because I had people like uh, Baron Wersick and, and Randy Davis and, and others who uh, basically did all the field work on those. And I just sat in the laboratory and analyzed data when they brought it back. But it was still a chance to be in, in science. And uh, uh, so I did get a chance to, to do some of that. And, uh, but now I teach a little bit and, and lecture a little bit and uh, uh, paint a little bit. And uh, uh, I've decided to, uh, to do that, but I, I'm starting to write now. And uh, I think that's something that is um, dying. I'm, I'm editing a journal, uh, the American Midland, that's 100 years old. And uh, <clears throat> very interesting, <clears throat> excuse me, very interesting journal because as far as I know, it's the only scientific journal that is not published by a foundation or a society of one sort or another. It's published by a university. And uh, 
the, uh, uh, the university, the founder was uh, a, a, a priest who was also a, a physical chemist and was one of the people who discovered the method to uh, make latex. And uh, he was at a meeting with fellows from DuPont and other places, a settling chemist, and the guy was saying, we, we're trying to make this artificial rubber, and yeah, but we get down here and it won't do this. And uh, Father Newland reached over and said, well, yeah, but you know, if you try this and if you do that, well, it turns out that worked. And uh, apparently they could not, DuPont wanted that patent, but they couldn't get it because they, they didn't want to, they couldn't give money to Newland because he was a priest and had taken a vow of poverty. However, the university stepped in and said, well, yeah, but we can accept it. So the, the university took it. And now there's the Newland Library, the Newland this, the Newland something else, and the journal. And uh, so it's, um, and that's sort of been my retirement. That's all we have time for today. And I'd like to thank you for listening. If you would like to see Dr. Evans' full interview or other scientists in the HP series, then please visit theaquaticmammalsjournal.org and click on the Historical Perspectives tab near the top.